Thank you so much. Good morning. We're turning in our Bibles now to 1 John in chapter 5, inching our way towards the conclusion of this, of his three epistles. Remember that the Gospel of John was written primarily to unbelievers to lead them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the epistles of John are written primarily to believers. Hopefully they've worked their way through the Gospel. They came to saving faith, and now they're trying to apply the truth of life found in God's Word to their own personal lives. And now we're reaching a point where in these summer days we're hitting a passage of scripture, somewhat controversial, somewhat complex. It has to do at the end of verse 16 with the matter of what does it mean, this sin unto death. We'll try to explore that subject together. As we begin reading in verse 13 of this fifth chapter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins not leading to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So we're going to have to explore these verses together and try to understand what it is that God is saying to you and to me through what is penned here as we look to our Lord now. In prayer. Father, in the beauty of these summer days and times of vacations and the comings and goings, a slower pace to life, we're thanking you, Father, for you being the God of all seasons of our lives. You're the constant in the midst of the variables. You're the one, Father, that speaks to us at our points of need. Father, the words that are found here in this passage by your intent seem to be complex and they need to be understood simultaneously. So we're asking that we will be faithful to your word and faithful to the intent of what's found here in your word as we relate truth to modern day life. So Father, in these minutes that you give us together once again, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I lived out in Ohio in my opening days of pastoral ministry, I was talking to a woman by the name of Thelma. She was a public school teacher highly influential in her setting. And she said, I have a story to tell you. And I was all years because Thelma is a great conversationalist. She came up to me and she said, you won't believe what happened to me. And so I said, well, tell me. She said, well, I was finishing up my day in the classroom and I was walking down a hallway to head out the door when one of the teachers came up to me and said to me, Thelma, 
you're a Christian, aren't you? He said, Gary, I've never been asked that question before. She said that the man told her that he'd been watching the way in which he lived and listened to the way in which he talked and interacted with other teachers. And something stood out about her. And she said, Gary, that meant so much to me because at that particular moment, I was struggling with this whole issue of the assurance of my faith. That story got embedded in my notes in the way in which God goes about in various ways, surprising ways, of taking, un, taking unbelievers and bringing them into the vicinity of a believer and allowing an unbeliever to say to a believer, I've been watching, I've been listening, you're a Christian, aren't you? You stand out. Ever had anybody do that with you? This is one of three ways by which a believer finds a sense of assurance. One is what I will call verbal. It is the verbal inspiration of God's word, the written word. The second is internal. It's the Holy Spirit affirming in your heart that you belong to God through Jesus. Third, evidential. When people look at you and see, I see the evidence here of somebody who's different than us. And what stood out in that unbeliever's mind regarding Thelma is the way in which she had such a sense of certainty and such a sense of quiet peace in her life in the midst of all the challenges and the difficulties that would come everybody's, in everybody's way. What I want to do with you is to continue to explore this idea of assurance that's found here in these verses because it seems to be a common theme in the verses that John is penning for us. And what we're going to do this morning as we continue to work this through, since we've been doing in January, is now to draw out two significant connections that are found in these verses that have to do with the whole matter of the assurance of eternal life. The first is found here in verse 13 where he had written, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So we're going to first of all note this morning the connection between what we'll call purposefulness and assurance. And notice that this is the purpose by which John is writing this letter. In this verse, he's saying very clearly this is my intent with regard to communicating this entire epistle to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, not assume, know, not in the form of wishful thinking, know with all certainty that you have eternal life. So we're going to deal, first of all, with his purpose here, and we've got to bring this sense of purposefulness into the way in which we, in turn, minister to others in those Thelma moments when somebody is watching and observing, and perhaps we're not even aware of it, but it's that calm, internal spirit that in the midst of the crises of life, you've got the serenity of certainty that stands out in the eyes of people that long to have what, in fact, you've got if you know Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. 
So for those Thelma moments of life, notice that it starts with, I write these things to you. He's got his readership in mind. But as he begins to pen this, he's reaching that point now of intentionality. He goes on to say, who believe? You and I come across people on a daily basis who believe in a wide range of things. There are a wide range of believers. The question is, believe in what or believe in whom? Notice very carefully, he uses the preposition here, in. Not merely about. What do you believe about Jesus? That's one thing. But more significantly, do you believe in Jesus? Now, notice how it's phrased here. Who believe in the name of the Son of God. At that point, then, what you and I do is we nod our heads and we go back once again to what God has established for us in that birth announcement regarding Jesus to Joseph. When an angel appeared on the scene and said to Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you... See how personal God made it? Joseph's got to be involved in the naming. But God the Father is equipping Joseph now with the whole matter of what to name him. You shall name him Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. So now we have their, a sense of significance about this. I write these things to you who believe in the name. Not merely about the name. Not an acquaintanceship with this name. There's something more settled here about your relationship to God. It is in the name of this one who is denoted as Savior. Remember Helen Keller's story? She didn't learn to know the story about Jesus Christ as her Lord and as her Savior until a later stage. She was born unable to hear, born unable to see, and for a long period of time, ill-equipped to speak. But she was brought to a particular pastor out east, well-known, and at the end of a particular message that he had given, she was brought into his office. And there he began to communicate to her via her interpreter who would write down words onto her hand. And he had her write down into Helen's hand the name of Jesus and then explain the name to her. The biographer tells us that the face of Miss Keller lighted up as she spelled into the hands of her interpreter and then, through her broken ability to speak, said, I knew. I knew all the time there must be one like that. But I didn't know his name. Now, the name of Jesus can so readily slip off of our lips without taking into account the significance of what that name entails. And that's why the Apostle John, who penned this letter, was standing there with Peter 
And of course, out there on the streets of Jerusalem, as they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he had done, and why, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, here then they were making this statement that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now you can imagine the tremendous impact that that had on the Apostle John at this point as he would watch the people carry within to their hearts the very significance of this name. They would know it from the Aramaic, what in fact that entailed. I write these things to you who believe in God the Savior, Jesus, in the name of the Son of God. Now, you and I have pondered the significance in the Gospel account writing of how God the Father has attested to who Jesus is at the baptism. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And then on that Mount of Transfiguration, where God the Father is witnessing to Peter, James, and John with regard to this, his son, listen to him. And so he bookends it now, and it seems to have squeezed John's heart regarding who Jesus is, that he, in fact, is the Son of God. And then he adds this. And it's an incredibly powerful statement that you may know. And what fascinates me about this word know at this point is that it carries with it the idea of certainty. So now you've got the verbal inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the internal residence of the Holy Spirit, and furthermore, the evidential workings by the Holy Spirit. As people are looking at you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and they're saying, in essence, you know somebody that we don't know. What is it about that sense of serenity? that sense of stability, that sense of peace that you've got in the crises of life. You seem to know someone, not merely something, that I don't know. And he says, you know this one. You have eternal life. Ironside. Pastor Ironside was pastor of the Moody Church. And he tells this story in biography. There's this elderly man, you see, who approaches him and says, I will not go on unless I know I'm saved, or else know it's hopeless to seek to be sure of being saved. I need and I want a definite witness, something that I can't be mistaken about. Now, Ironside replied, suppose you had a vision of an angel who told you your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough to rest on? Pause. The man said, I think it would. I mean, after all, an angel should be right. Ironside then continued. But suppose on your deathbed, Satan came and said, I was that angel. Transformed to deceive you. What would you say then? Ironside tells us the man was speechless. 
Ironside then told him that God has given us something more dependable than the voice of an angel because there are those aligned with God's will and those opposed to God's will. He has given his son who died for our sins and he has testified in his own word that if we trust him, all our sins are gone. And Ironside then read from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, you may know that you have eternal life. And then he asked the man this question, is that not enough to rest on? It's a letter from heaven, written just for you. Now, this morning as you come here, what in your life is creating a sense of uncertainty? Have you had one of those Thelma moments when you bridge the three ways in which God will witness a sense of assurance to yourself? The verbal inspiration of God's word, guided by the Holy Spirit. The internal residence in your soul of the Holy Spirit. And the evidential aspect of people noticing you, there is something different about you. And so then, you begin to ask yourself a question. If, if somebody knew I was a Christian, would they be surprised? Or are they the sort of people that would come up to me and say, in the form of a question, are you a Christian? Which would it be? These are the things that people grapple with and the things that have to be processed in the whole matter of eternal life. Because this is not merely a profession of faith. As we've been saying throughout this series, this is the possession of faith. This is something enduring. It's eternal. We persevere in life while God preserves us in this life. God's preservation and our perseverance work in tandem in such a way in which we have this sense of assurance. Now, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, we were standing outside of Buckingham Palace two years ago. Pam, Ben, me. I'm looking at this statue, and it's a statue of Queen Victoria from the 1800s. And there's this story that's beginning to unfold in my mind, and I'm trying to piece it all together as we continue our tour of church history throughout London and make our way eventually into St. Paul's Cathedral, Cathedral, where a worship service was taking place. And then it came together for me. Queen Victoria had attended St. Paul's listened to a message, and afterwards asked her chaplain, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? We're told that the answer was that he knew no way that one could be absolutely sure. But this incident was recorded and published in the court news, came to the attention of a pastor in London by John, named John Townsend, and after reading of Queen Victoria's question and the answer she got, he prayed and sent the following note with people praying for him as he wrote it. To Her Gracious Majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heart-filled love for you, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, I'm asking you, most gracious majesty, to read the following passages of Scripture, John 3, 16, 
Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and 1 John 5, 13. John Townsend wasn't alone in praying. He had others praying, and about two weeks later, he received this letter, and it's still recorded there. To John Townsend, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture you referenced. I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he had said, I go to prepare a place for you. Thank you in particular for 1 John 5, 13. You see. Now, God so cares about you that he has given this sense of purposefulness for you. And so now you pull this together. I write these things to you who believe, who believe in, not merely about, who believe in the name. God is our salvation, Jesus. Who believe in the name of the Son of God. Think now baptism and Mount of Transfiguration, pull it all together, that you, and here is his intentional statement, may know, not merely wish for, hope for, know that you have not temporal life, that you have eternal life. And that becomes his starting point of intentionality here in these verses. And bridges naturally with what we've noticed here in his gospel account when he wrote to the people regarding the evangelistic aspect of that gospel these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life where? In his name. Now, you take the John chapter 20, verse 31, and you write it now right next to verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life, and now you've taken the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John, pulled it all together, and you see the overarching full spectrum of discipleship that the Apostle John has in mind here as he leads people not only to Christ, but leads them through life in Christ so that they can impact others for Christ. Is that where you're at this morning? Have you had a Thelma moment? Now, once you've worked through the purposefulness of all this, as it relates to your life and my life and the assurance that he gives to the one who has put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus, you move then from the connectedness between the, the purposefulness and assurance to second of all what we will call here prayerfulness and assurance. And now you pick it up in the very next verse and you begin to work it through 14 down through verse 17. And what I want to do now with you, beginning in verse 14, is to draw two warrants that are found here. Note then, second of all, the connection between prayerfulness and assurance, 14 through 17. And the first warrant here is why confidence is warranted. Note carefully, 14. And this is the confidence that we, only the believers, we have toward him. Pause. The word confidence, and we've noted that off and on in this epistle, carries with it the idea of freedom of speech. Now, if you're watching very carefully in matters of First Amendment throughout the United States, you know in particular at Berkeley and other settings in California, there are now what we are called freedom of speech zones. There are zoning restrictions. 
in the matter of freedom of speech. It's the big collision course coming our way. And freedom of religion, freedom of speech are found in that same amendment. What is now fascinating to me is that this very idea is wrapped up in that word confidence, which means then that when you're praying and you are burdened and you need that sense of assurance and you're coming before God and you've already established the purposefulness of all this in 13, you combine purposefulness now with prayerfulness in 14 and you say, I can come into his presence not based upon my works, no, based upon Christ's finished work, So freedom of speech, when it comes to prayer, this is the confidence that we have toward him. And then astoundingly, astoundingly, he makes this statement. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And you say, well, Gary, now that's the challenge for me. That is the issue of the hour for me when it comes to this whole issue of prayer. At this point, you go to Gethsemane with me again. After all, the Apostle John was there. Jesus went, according to Matthew 26, in verse 36, to a place called Gethsemane. He went there with them, the apostles. Said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, Apostle John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is the one who said in John chapter 14, be not troubled. He became troubled, so you don't need to be troubled. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And now he distances himself. Going a little farther, he fell on his face, and here's what he prayed. My father, now is the condition. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then the nevertheless. Not as I will, but as you will. Now the tension might be to say, my father, if it be possible, let whatever this issue I'm facing now pass from me. Nevertheless, not your will, but my will. And that is a counterfeit aspect of prayer. What we've got to do is to take the tension of the will and allow for Jesus in that crisis moment to speak to our hearts. My Father, if it be possible, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, and we don't flip it. Which means then there are two questions, minimum, that you and I have got to begin to grapple with. First question, am I in God's will? In other words, I've got to start with what God has already revealed regarding his will. Jot down off to the side, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Am I in God's will? Question number one. Am I willing to do God's will before I know what it is? Question number two. If I have already predetermined how I will respond once God has revealed what has thus far been concealed, if I have already predetermined my response and the response may be no, then I have flipped the Gethsemane prayer and made it my will rather than God's will, even though I am speaking to the Father. Case in point. Back to London. Graham Scroggy was a pastor in London, gifted, ministered in a wide range of settings. At the end of one of his services, he was walking toward the back, and he had been speaking on the will of God. When he heard this woman, who was somewhat broken, she was whispering in rather a loud way, No, Lord. No, Lord. No, Lord. Scroggy was incredibly pastoral, sat down next to her in the pew, listened as she began to share her life story, and then began to work through scriptures with her. And he told her something that stood out. He said, you cannot have the word no and the word Lord in the same sentence. If you say no, you can't say Lord. If you say Lord, you can't say no. And after they reasoned and prayed, he got up to leave, and he heard her saying, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. When you're dealing with the will of God, you are dealing with matters of both that which is revealed, number one, and that which is concealed, number two. Before you get to what has not yet been revealed, you begin with what has been revealed, because if you are not willing to obey him in what has been revealed, then you're going to be disappointed in terms of what has not yet been revealed. But if we are centering ourselves, you see, in the will of God, in the matter of what has been revealed. And we have already developed a yes, Lord, spirit internally. We are prepared for what at this point has been concealed but will eventually have been revealed. And now we're working very carefully through the way in which God would have us to pray. And as the Apostle John now is penning these thoughts for you and for me to consider, this is the confidence, this is the freedom of speech that we have toward him, and then he brings this out, that if we ask anything, but then you underline what comes next according to his will, not according to ours, he hears us. In other words, what is implied here is that if it is not according to his will, there's a sense where he doesn't hear us. Oh, he hears us in the sense of being omniscient, 
But in terms of being responsive to that, we've got to think very carefully regarding this whole matter of the will of God as it relates to the word of God, the revealed before we get to the concealed. And you can almost sense now how the Apostle John is once again allowing his experience with Jesus in that upper room to minister to his soul when Jesus had said to his twelve, Truly I say to you, whoever believes swear in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father, and we see it in the book of Acts. But then he added this to his disciples, whatever you ask, where? In my name. How did verse 13 read? The name, the Son of God. In my name, not merely about it, this I will do, and the Father will be glorified, may be glorified where? In the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And that seems to have captured the heartbeat of what John is writing here. If we know that he hears us, now in verse 15, in whatever we ask, we know, there's that word again, that we have the requests that we have asked of him, James Gilmore. Missionary to Mongolia, once asked to treat some wounded soldiers. In his biography, we're told, he was not a doctor, but he did have some knowledge of first aid. Dressed the wounds of two of the men, but a third had a badly broken thigh bone. Gilmore didn't know what to do, so he knelt down beside the man and prayed. In Christ's name, Confident that God would answer, it's what came next that captures my attention. As he pondered what to do next, a crowd of beggars came by asking for money. Gilmore was preoccupied with the wounded soldier, yet his heart went out to those ragged paupers, wording of that day and age. Hurriedly gave them a little money, a few words, loving concern. A moment later, he stared in amazement at one weary beggar who had remained behind Get this, the starving man was little more than a living skeleton. The missionary suddenly realized that the Lord had brought him a walking lesson in human anatomy. Gilmer asked the elderly man if he could examine him. And so carefully he traced his fingers over the area corresponding to the broken bones of the soldier. He was then able to go to the wounded man, set his fracture. And years after, Gilmore would tell this story about how God answers prayer when you pray in Jesus' name. Now, what I'm saying here is that we've got to deal with not my will, but thy will, and not flip it. We've got to deal with what is revealed before we deal with what is concealed. I've got to start with, am I in Christ or am I outside of Christ? And if I'm in Christ, am I in his will in Christ? And then I move from question one to question two, where I then ask myself, am I willing to do God's will before I even know what it is? Now, when you take that freedom of speech issue that's found there in that particular verse, then in verses 14 and 15, this whole matter of prayerfulness and assurance, we're told here why confidence is warranted. But now we get to the tough part. I know you've been waiting for it. 16 and 17. 
The second warrant, when intercession is warranted. Check it out. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Let me say that throughout the scriptures, there are at least eight different reasons why people suffer. But furthermore, there are also multiple reasons why people die. We can't assume a singular reason and prejudge an individual like Job's friends did. But we've got to bear in mind that there is a potential here that we're dealing with a sin unto death matter, and we've got to think that through. What you will see is that there are two different matters pertaining to sin. There is a sin not leading to death at the beginning of verse 16. There is a sin which leads to death found in the second part of verse 16. How do we distinguish these? Begin to think this through very carefully with me. Notice, first of all, we're dealing with something which is observable. If anyone sees, doesn't say if anyone assumes, doesn't say if anyone merely thinks. No, we're dealing here with evidential matters at this point. So he begins with this eyewitness account. If anyone sees, the second phrase, his brother and here's where your commentators are going to begin to divide. You're going to have some very gifted evangelical commentators who are going to view this whole matter of sin unto death as eternal death. And therefore, they've got to deal with this whole matter, that, but there's certainty of eternal life in the epistle of John. How can that be? Their response is that the word brother at this point could refer to just simply your neighbor. Somebody that's perhaps a religious unbeliever who has a profession of faith, but not the possession of faith, you see. But I, on the other hand, just so you know where I'm coming from, I take this as brother, meaning brother, because I've tracked the word brother throughout the gospel account as well as the epistles, and there seems to be a consistency here with regard to the way in which the Apostle John uses the word brother as it pertains to someone who is in the family of faith, not just simply living amidst and among the family of faith. If anyone sees his brother. Now, the next phrase here, committing a sin, is interesting to me. Because it means literally sinning a sin. Furthermore, it's in the present tense. It is continual. It is what we might call derivative. It lasts. In other words, this person who is a brother is committing a sin, has become hardened in that particular sin, and it's ongoing. Seems to be unending. Now, in this case, we start with this brother committing a sin not leading to death. What do we do? Based upon what we saw previously in 14 and 15, if we are in Christ and we are praying according to the will of God, then we pray, we intercede, and we ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead 
to death. That is one side of the equation. But here now is the other side. He adds, there is a sin that leads to death. All this comes down to how you're going to view that whole matter of brother. Does it only relate to one side of the equation, not the other? Or to both sides of the equation? If it relates to both sides of the equation, then our argument here is that this pertains to physical death. In other words, there are individuals who, as believers, will continue in a particular sin. They will not lose eternal life. But God in his glory may remove them from this earth in order to maintain his glory and the furtherance of the gospel all for his all for his will. And you say, but Gary, can you give me an example of that? Well, Paul mentioned that the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, had participated in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Some of them became sick. Others, it resulted in death. If you go into your Older Testament, in fact, you will even find Moses who longed to go into the Promised Land. But because of a particular episode prior to, God would not allow him to go in. And so God allowed him to stand upon a high mount, look down upon the, mount, upon the promised land, and then Moses died and was buried by God. Furthermore, if you were to look, you see Nadab and Abihu smitten to death, disobedience to the Lord in Numbers chapter 3. In your Newer Testament, Ananias and Sapphira for their sins in Acts chapter 5. And so it's possible that John has in mind here something so serious, so serious being committed by a believer, if I take brother consistently at this point, that I have got to then simply apply, apply what the Apostle John did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if I'm being consistent with my thinking here at this point, we are told here, beginning in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing when you are assembled in where? The name of the Lord Jesus. And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So then, not only are there various reasons for suffering, there are various reasons for dying. One of them can be chastisement, discipline, all for the sake of God preserving his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. What that means, then, you and I have got to be very cautious when it comes to this area and not presume. We cannot have a spirit of judgmentalism. We allow God to work in the realm of justice. Charles Schultz understood that. Peanuts. Long time ago. Spotted this cartoon. It's a comic strip. Lucy's looking at Linus. He's got this little finger like this. And he's saying, and she says, what's the matter with you? And Linus says, I have a, a sliver in my finger. Aha, Lucy says. That means you are being punished for something. What have you done wrong lately? And Linus says, I haven't done anything wrong. You have a sliver, don't you? That's a misfortune, isn't it? You are being punished with misfortune because you have been bad. 
Boy, this sounds like Joe's friends, their friends. And Charlie Brown's taking all of this in, and he says, now, wait a minute. But then Lucy interrupts him once again. What do you know about this, Charlie Brown? This is a sign. This is a direct sign of punishment. Linus has done something very wrong, and now he has to suffer misfortune. I know all about these things. I know. I underlined that word, know, and I wrote it into the side here, 1 John 5. And as she's halfway through the sentence, Linus is looking and he says, it's out. I just popped the sliver out. And in the last frame, Lucy, incredibly disappointed, turns away with frown on her face, starts walking off, and Linus says, quote, thus endeth the theological lesson for today, unquote. A church is not to be judgmental. What we have to understand is that justice and grace are balanced at the cross of Jesus Christ. At the same time, this passage allows for various aspects of the way in which sin and death collide. And we've got to be very careful to allow God's word to speak to our hearts and allow God to do his work for his glory. And when that happens, it's a Thelma moment. And somebody looks at you. And when they see you living that way and ministering to others that way, there's a question on their hearts. Are you a Christian? We shouldn't be surprised if they ask. Let's stand together. We've done our best, Father, to interpret this accurately. Guide us and direct us in this whole matter. One thing that stands out bottom line in that last section is the gravity of sin as it relates to the glory of God. And so, Father, may we take sin seriously, but we have to understand in taking sin seriously that you have taken sin seriously at the cross when you sent Jesus to be our substitute and to die in our place for our sins. And we praise you for that. So we pray that each one here knows Jesus, is in Jesus, and seeking your will in Christ. And may people continuously come up to us, observe us, listen to us, and ask, you're a Christian, aren't you? I pray that each one here will be able to say, without a doubt, yes, for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.